And please turn in your Bibles now to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. You can find this on page 1323 in the Pew Bible. Congratulations uh, to the congregation. You've finally made it uh, to the end of this book. We're entering the last section. Uh, Chapter 15 is a large uh, chapter uh, dealing with a final uh, problem that Paul's addressing to this church, which, as we've said, is a gifted church, is an enthusiastic church, which is a young church with many problems. And Paul's uh, dealt with issues such as internal divisions and immorality, um, engagement with the culture, their worship practices, and now this final topic has to do with the final state of God's people, with the resurrection of the dead. And it seems that the Corinthians maybe had uh, taken on board some of the ideas of their culture uh, to the impoverishment of their faith, and so Paul writes to uh, correct this confusion in chapter 15. So we're just going to read verses 1 to 11 now and look at the first part of his discussion, but this will take us a couple of weeks, Lord willing, uh, to go through. These are important verses which uh, give great encouragement to the people of God. So let's give our attention. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And there will in the reading of God's word, may God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Having just returned from some time in Florida... Our family was hearing a lot about what is called the Parental Rights in Education Bill that was just passed by the Florida legislature and is on its way to the governor's desk. Now, you've probably not heard it called the Parental Rights in Education Bill. You've probably heard it called the Don't Say Gay Bill. And without getting into too much of the specifics, it seems like what are some fairly common sense uh, ideas about limiting what is taught in the younger grades in school, uh, this has become a battlefield in the state of Florida and around the entire country. And it's an illustration to us that if there's anything that's even perceived remotely as pushing back 
on the progressive sexual and, and uh, gender or a uh, uh, program that's going in our country today, it must be stopped and it must be opposed. And so we live in a culture in which norms of biblical sexual morality are at odds with the prevailing culture. That's the situation in which the church exists. But this is nothing new. In the situation in Corinth, there were many beliefs that the church had that were also running against the grain of the culture. And the culture was pushing against the people of God continuously. And at times, it seems that the people of the church, as is the case today, uh, imbibe the spirit of the age and modify their beliefs in such a way uh, to make themselves fit in with the culture. And in this particular instance, Paul uh, in this book has addressed a number of examples of this, right? The, their, their desire to have celebrity pastors, right? and he, he, that's caused division in their church. Uh, their, their views on sexual uh, morality, uh, their desire to attend these pagan worship uh, uh, rituals and dinners. And we've seen a number of these issues. So now, at the end of the book, he's coming to another issue. And this is the key truth of the resurrection of the body and the final state of the Christian uh, throughout all eternity. And the teaching of the Bible was against the grain of what the culture, the Greco-Roman culture, taught and believed. And so Paul takes them back to the basics. And as I said, this is a prolonged argument he makes in chapter 15, but he begins in these first 11 verses with the basics, taking us back to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the significance of that. And so what I want us to see as we look at just these first 11 verses is that the heart of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. That's at the very heart of the gospel. And we as believers need to rejoice in that good news and to believe it and believe all that it means for us. And children, if you'd like to draw a picture this morning, the, this passage talks about uh, Peter and it talks about James and it talks about the apostles and a group of over 500 people. So pick one of those people and uh, maybe draw that person. And what is it that they all saw that, that they have in common that Paul talks about in this passage? And why is that so important to us? Well, the thing, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the, 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 this message, we have an, uh, an outline for it in the bulletin. And so the first thing that we want to notice is that to answer a difficult theological problem, Paul goes back to the basics. And we see this in verses 1 and 11 of this text. Before we look at those, look over in verse 12, because in verse 12 you'll find the actual question that he's answering, or the problem. He says there in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is what was happening. Some in their body were teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. Now we don't know exactly what they were saying. Uh, maybe they were saying there's no afterlife at all. Probably not. Uh, maybe they were saying that the resurrection had already happened. If you've become a believer, you're, you're, you know, that's what the resurrection is. Uh, maybe they were saying that um, after we die, we, we just are disembodied spirits forever. We're like the angels, and so that's what the final state is. But it seems that they were influenced by this Greek idea 
that the spirit was your true self and your body was just sort of a house for your spirit. In fact, they, they had a saying, soma sema, that the body is a tomb. And so that some of the philosophers wrote that when you die, your, your, your spirit, your true nature is finally released from this prison of a body that's kept you back. And so that the, the idea there would be your body is the source of the, the passions and the sins and the lack of self-control that you struggle with and that what you need really is to be liberated from your body which is holding you back. So of course then the idea of the resurrection of the body and that the eternal state of a believer is, is in a body would run against the grain of their culture. And so what Paul's doing here in this whole chapter is addressing this heresy, this, this false teaching about the final state of Christians. Now, we hear that and we could say, well, we don't live in a Greek culture, so why does this matter to us today? But the implications of this teaching are profound because your ultimate view of reality, your view of life in this world, your view of morality, your view of caring for needs in this world, whether we try to reform uh, our world or if we just say to ourselves, this whole world, God's getting rid of it. Our bodies, God's getting rid of them. They're, really, it's all temporary. Our focus just needs to be on the spiritual. You see, there's a very big difference in terms of the implications from this teaching and what we think about this physical world that God has given us. And the Bible teaches us that God's purpose is not merely the saving of disembodied souls to be in heaven with him forever, but the restoration of the entire created order. I put on the back of your outline a cross-reference from Romans 8, uh, verses 9 to 21. This is in the bulletin. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We don't know what all that means, but it's an amazing promise that God is renewing not only his people, but this entire world. This is why the Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. So this issue is not a trivial issue. It's important and it's essential component of the Christian life and it touches on such things as what does it mean to be human? What is God's goal for the universe? Where is history and ultimate reality ultimately headed? And, and Paul brackets this beginning section verses 1 to 11 in verses 1 and 11 by telling them, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. So that's what he starts in verse 1 and if you look at verse 11, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul came bringing them the gospel. That could be translated the good news. And at the heart of the good news was an issue related to the resurrection. And what's noting, what, we, what we should note here is that Paul, as he addresses this heresy, he doesn't just go in and, and attack them with a very difficult theology uh, he doesn't go at them with philosophy. He goes back to first principles. He goes back to the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he preached to them, and why that's important. Matthew Henry, speaking about this, and, and this uh, cross-reference is in the bulletin as well, said, divine truths appear with greatest evidence when they are looked upon in their mutual connection. The foundation may be strengthened 
that the superstructure may be secured. And so Paul in chapter 15 is going to give a very patient, thorough approach to the resurrection, but he starts here with the gospel. Uh, One commentator calls this chapter one of the greatest theological treasures of the church, and it truly is. But he starts with first principles. He starts with the basics, the gospel. Last summer, uh, I'm sure you remember this, there was a condominium complex in Miami that collapsed, killing 98 people. And that complex collapsed because they had allowed water to get into uh, the basement where the cars were parked. And uh, that water had eaten away at some of the, uh, the steel that was reinforcing the concrete. And over time, that's, that foundation had gotten weak. And so that then suddenly, a huge part of the building just fell down. And so we understand that putting you know, new railings and having good balconies and stairways or something like that in a, in a condo complex like that when the foundation is bad is really not where we should be focusing our energy. And, and, and sometimes this is true in the Christian life as well. I, th- I think as, as Reformed Presbyterians, right, we, we could be tempted to think that the things that are most important, uh, important are those things that make us sort of unique, the, the fact that we don't have instruments here or that we're only singing the Psalms and other things like that, that we're baptizing infants. And of course, without saying those things aren't important, they are important, but they're not the most important things. Like the most important things are the gospel and being and our first principles. And I think that's probably an important word for parents raising children as well. Uh, this idea that sometimes uh, we need to just keep working on the basics. We just need to keep working on the basics. Who are you? Who is God? What does God want from you? How can we know God? Just continuing to reinforce the basics. And that's really what Paul's doing here. We can learn from Paul's approach to this difficult question Go back to the basics to start out. Well, secondly, we see here that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the gospel. We see this in verses 3 and 4. So if you look in verse 3, he says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So recognize this language from chapter 11, verse 23, when he's talking to them about the Lord's Supper. This is a sacred trust that he received that he passed on to them. And we know from the book of Galatians that uh, Jesus passed this on to him directly. Uh, I put in the uh, bulletin Galatians 1, 11 and 12, where Paul says, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It seems that as The Lord Jesus revealed himself to Paul. There were things that Jesus communicated to Paul. And Paul's bringing this gospel message to us uh, from the Lord directly. So what does he say in the second half of verse 3? This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So this is what Paul passes on. My translation says that he passed this on first. Some of the translations, I think, maybe say more accurately, this is of first importance. This is the thing. This is the primary thing, that Christ died, rose again for our sins, he says. And when he says he did this for our sins, 
What he means is that Jesus died in our place. This is the atonement. Jesus went there in our place so that we could be forgiven. Jesus did not die as an example to us. He did not die to show us what real love looks like. He died in our place as a substitute to save us for our sins. And Paul here is really trying to highlight for them, Christ really died. Uh, Amy and I had a visit from an old friend of ours a couple of months ago. And as we were talking to him about the death of his father, which had taken place uh, a couple of years back, a very traumatizing time in our friend's life. And this is uh, a person I've known since grade school. And he told me that he was there uh, when his, his dad died uh, after a battle with cancer and uh, had died in, in agony and um, in great distress. And he said the, the uh, funeral home sent one man to come and pick up the body. And so he said that uh, he couldn't really believe it, but the funeral home uh, guy said, okay, now uh, you, you, know, you take... Uh, part of him and I'll take part of him and so my friend has to literally lift his own father's dead body and he said when he uh, lifted him up and saw his dad's head lull uh, over um, the power of that that experience is something still very much with him and what Paul wants you and me to remember is that our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, came in a human body and died. His heart stopped beating. Brain waves stopped communicating. And he was dead for us. And the great joy of the resurrection and the gospel is that he came back to life in his body, in his body. Jesus was at great pains to show his disciples it wasn't just his spirit that was alive. It was his body that was alive. He said to them, behold, my hands and my feet, it's, it's I myself, handle me, see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And then he asked for something to eat. He wanted them to know his body, which had died, had come back to life. Now, these Corinthians are doubting that they are going to come back to life after they die. And Paul is starting with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus Christ came back. And this is so helpful for us to realize what the gospel is. The gospel isn't a set of rules for you to follow, it is not a set of disciplines for you to practice. The gospel is what Jesus did for you. It's so easy to get that wrong. The death and the resurrection of Jesus for our sins. That's what saves us. That's the heart of the gospel. Well, Paul also goes on here to point out that the resurrection of Jesus is a fact of history. As he continues in verses 4 and following. And this is encouraging to us because our faith, our hope, is not in somebody else's opinions or some philosophy 
but in an objective fact of history that actually happened. One commentator here noting that Paul is not trying to prove the resurrection here. He's speaking to believers about how certain their faith should be given their confidence that the resurrection occurred. So he said in verses 3 and 4, which we already read, that Christ died and rose according to the scriptures. So one of the things that's fascinating is that what happened to Jesus was predicted in the scriptures hundreds of years before it actually happened. And we could spend the rest of this sermon going through all the scriptural examples that pointed to the death and resurrection of Jesus. I put in the, uh, in the bulletin a number of these sample cross-references uh, from the book of Daniel, where it talks about the Messiah being cut off, but not for himself. Psalm 22, which we looked at earlier in the service. They pierced my hands and my feet. They divided their gar- my garments among them. Or Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. They said Jesus was going to be buried uh, with a rich, in a rich man's grave, and he was. Or Psalm 16, which we'll sing after the sermon. You did not leave my soul in Sheol, nor did you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You show me the path of life. Or in the book of Hosea, which speaks about after two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up. Or even in Matthew, where Jesus refers to the whole book of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights. And we could go on and on. The, the, Bible, the, the Old Testament scriptures tell us that he would be born in Bethlehem, that his family would flee to Egypt, that he was a descendant of David, that he was born in the times of the Roman Empire, that he would heal the sick, that he would be a prophet, that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, that he would be given sour wine while on the cross, that his critics would mock him. And even as we've said, he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, but his body would not be broken and he would rise on the third day. And some estimate that there may be 200 or more different prophecies about Jesus that are in the scripture. So Paul's saying you have great confidence in this resurrection which was predicted in the scriptures. But he also goes on to say you have in addition to this eyewitness testimony. In their day, the greatest possible authority was eyewitness testimony. And if you had two or three witnesses, you could establish a matter. But Paul goes here to cite five different times when the risen Jesus was seen. He mentions Peter, Cephas, and the twelve. That would be a catch-all for the disciples. Judas was no longer alive, but that represents the disciples in verse 5. In verse 6, it mentions more than 500 people. In verse 7, it mentions James. That would be Jesus' brother and all the disciples again. And then he mentions Paul. Paul mentions himself, uh, which is referring to the event on the road to Damascus. And this is very significant. Notice that in verse 6, it talks about these 500 brethren of whom the greater part remain to the present. And, and this is what's fascinating. You say, these people saw Jesus alive, and they're, and they're alive today. And you can go ask them about this if you have any questions about whether Jesus really rose from the dead. Commentator Charles Hodge says, there was never a historical event established on surer evidence than that of the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. This actually happened. Jesus was seen alive in the flesh 
after he died. And there were hundreds of witnesses who saw that. And Paul was writing within the lifetimes of those witnesses. There is as much evidence for this as anything that's happened in history. And now when we were preparing for our 200th anniversary celebrations last uh, fall and summer, uh, we did a lot of research. Uh, Cheryl uh, put together an amazing book uh, on the history. And uh, we got the help of Eric Filson to put together a video documentary on our history. And uh, we hope that what we have in these, uh, these um, resources is accurate. But we have to admit, we weren't there. We weren't there. And, and we were relying on sources, a lot of times, uh, sometimes people who weren't there either, who, uh, who are, you know, we're, we're trying to go back to the sources as much as we can. So we recognize we may be wrong. But Paul's saying here about Jesus, these people saw it. These people who are alive, who you can talk to. There's absolute confidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is so important to you and me. Your faith is not just wishful thinking, something that you hope is true. You don't just believe in spite of the evidence. It's not uh, irrational to be a Christian, to believe in the resurrection of Christ. This is something that happened. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then this, uh, this validates who he was and what he taught. Recognize, Paul wants you and me to realize that the resurrection of Jesus, the heart of the gospel, is a historical fact, a reality of history. And then Paul goes on to remind them that the gospel has the power to transform your life. And this is true for you no matter who you are. Paul says about this gospel that he preached in the second half of verse 1, Uh, I preach this to you, which you also receive and in which you stand. And he goes on in verse 2 to say, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So unless you're a hypocrite and you didn't really believe, this is the message that you believed. This is the message that changed your life, that transformed you from a lost pagan, which is what they were in Corinth, to a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, a knower of God. And so Paul's saying, you know the power of the resurrection experientially. You believe this this message that I preach to you. And Paul says this is true in his own life as well. If you look down in verses uh, 8 and following. In verse 8, he says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So Paul's a witness. And he says in verse 9, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And Paul recognizes the power of the resurrection in his life And he calls himself the least of the apostles because he was a person who murdered, who hunted down, and who persecuted the church of God. He says he's a, in verse 8, one who's born out of due time. And the actual Greek word there is the word for a miscarriage. And Paul seems to be saying there is he was as helpless as a stillborn baby in terms of finding God and saving himself. 
But the Lord Jesus appeared to him, the resurrected Jesus, and gave him new life. Paul was born even though he was as a stillborn baby. In verse 10, he says, by, grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. So what is he saying? Paul recognizes he was a persecutor of the church, but it's God's grace who has transformed him. And God has made Paul a great servant of the church. He's transformed his life. But Paul says, it wasn't me. It was Jesus working in me. And John Calvin, speaking on these verses, says, let us learn, therefore, that we have nothing that is good but what the Lord has graciously given to us, that we do nothing good but what he works in us. And this is what Paul is saying. It was God's grace working in me. And what a staggering statement he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, a sinner saved and made useful. And when he says he labored harder than them all, he's saying he worked harder than all the other apostles put together. Paul's not bragging there. Paul's talking about what he gave his life to as a servant of Jesus Christ. And what was Paul? He was an enemy of God, full of pride, self-righteousness, and hatred. And God made him into the greatest human servant of the Lord that's ever lived. He planted the church when there was no church. He wrote most of the New Testament. And he continues to minister to us down to this day. And what he wants the the Corinthians to know is the same resurrection that saved Paul is is what saved them. That that's where their hope is. If the gospel can save Paul and if the gospel can save the Corinthians, then the gospel can save you and me. This is how we think about this truth. I know uh, we've talked about this uh, homeless lady who came into the congregation a couple of months ago and uh, disrupted the service by uh, swearing and yelling uh, before we started the service. And I was thinking as I was working on this sermon, we, we never know what God's going to do in a person's life. But do we at least acknowledge that the resurrection power of the gospel could transform a person like that? I think in the moment that was all happening, I was thinking, how do we get this person out of here without more chaos ensuing? But the resurrection power of the gospel can change anyone. And that's what Paul's saying. If it changed me, it can change you. So any thoughts that you're not good enough to be a Christian, you're not good enough to be a servant of God, you need to put out of your minds no one is good enough. It's all by the grace of our perfect Savior. The gospel has the power to transform our lives. And so this leads us to our final point. Rejoice and believe the good news about what Jesus has done for you. When I was in seminary taking an apologetics class, I had to write a a paper on this portion 
of Scripture. And uh, I, I picked it because it is a beautiful summary of the gospel, but recognize that this is not a passage that you should use for evangelism, probably. It's, it's written for believers uh, to encourage our faith, to remind us what we have in Christ, to, to in, give us confidence that what we have believed is real and transformative. And, and the people in Corinth needed to know that God had saved them through a resurrected Savior and that there are many, many wonderful uh, implications of that truth. And we need to be careful about falling into the same error that they had in Corinth. Because in Corinth, because of the pressure of their culture, because of the ideas that were important to their culture, they thought this was a place that they could compromise. Yeah, that, that, sound, that does sound kind of silly, the idea that, you could, that your body could be raised. And so they were, they were modifying the truth of Scripture, and they were doing that uh, in a way that was impoverishing them. And recognize how important this is for you and me. Jesus came, and he came very consciously fulfilling all of these promises that God had given in the Scripture. Jesus walked this path intentionally, fulfilling the scripture about him. He knew them perfectly. And he moved toward his death with, without relenting, knowing what was coming. And he willingly allowed his body and spirit to be ripped apart as he died and remained in that state for th parts of three days. He did that for his people, for you, if you've put your faith in him. And when he came back to life, it was in body and soul so that he could show his people he had defeated death and the grave. And so he came to a lost man like Paul and he gave him new life. And he came to these confused pagans in Corinth and he gave them eyes to see the truth. And he comes to people like you and me, people who have no hope of giving themselves spiritual life. And he brings you to life by the power of his resurrection. And our problem isn't that Jesus hasn't done enough for us. It's that we forget. We need to be reminded of how great the work is that Christ has done for us. No matter what our culture says about any issue, it's what Jesus says to you and me. The gospel has saved us. The heart of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Rejoice and believe this truth about what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray and we'll give thanks to our Lord. Father, we confess that there are times when we have trouble truly believing what you have done for us. We are like these Corinthians who've tried to modify uh, the message a little bit to make it more palatable to their culture and their expectations. But Lord, we thank you that Paul takes us here back to the first principles, that the gospel that saves us is the gospel of a resurrected Savior. And that it's not in our believing or our doing or our following, but it's in his work alone that we are saved. 
how we thank you that our Lord Jesus did consent to die so that he could rise from the dead. And we thank you that in his death, he has taken our sins away. And in his life, he has given us victory over death and over sin. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live with this hope and this confidence, recognizing that no matter who we are or what we've done, Christ offers himself to us. We pray that we would trust him and love him. And we pray, Lord, as we continue to look at this passage in coming weeks, that you would teach us more about how significant it is that we will live again in our physical bodies throughout all eternity. We thank you for this wonderful truth, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we'll respond back to the Lord by singing from Psalm 16. This is a psalm that speaks about the resurrection, that the Lord did not leave his Holy One in the grave, uh, but uh, brought him to glory and to abundant life. Uh, Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 16, Selection D.